I'm taking as my text this morning that uh, reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1127. Romans chapter 13 and beginning at verse 11, which I'd like you to notice with me again. Romans chapter 13 and beginning at verse 11. in which we read, as Paul had written, and beside this you know the time that the hour has come for you, for, for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than it was when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. And so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This morning I want to talk about being ready for Christ when he comes being ready for Christ when he comes, which is a central theme of the Advent season. In fact, the word Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, which means coming. And so this is a central theme. Jesus is coming again, which Advent season begins today, and which we will observe for the next four weeks until Christmas comes and a new season will start. Indeed, generally speaking, the season of Advent is something of a metaphor for the time in which we're now living. We live between the first coming and the second. He's already come once, but he's coming again. And as we read in our gospel reading, we need to be watching because he will come at a time perhaps when we least expect. Fleming Rutledge in her book titled Advent wrote this about this principle. She said, Advent teaches us to to, that we live in a time between the first coming when he came unnoticed in the stable at Bethlehem and his second coming when he will come in glory to judge both the living and the dead. Advent contains within itself the crucial balance between the now and the not yet, between the Lord has come and the Lord is coming. And in our text, Paul says that now is the time to be ready for Christ when he comes. Notice again verses 11 and 12. And beside this, you know, he's writing to believers in Rome, you know that the time and that the hour has come for you you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Indeed, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. And so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You may have noticed in the collect that the collect that we prayed together at the first part of the service is taken right out of this text. But Paul says that our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That was true of the Romans. In the first century, that's true of us. And that's because Christ can come at any time. 
Every day that passes brings us closer to his coming again. As Jesus said in the gospel, Mark chapter 13 and verse 33, be on your guard. This is a, command, this is a dominical commandment. It's a commandment from God. <laughs> Jesus, you know the sweet Jesus you love? He told us, be on your guard and keep awake, spiritually alert, for you do not know when the time will come. Or even as we read in our gospel reading today, Matthew 24 and beginning at verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. It would not have let his house be broken into. And Jesus says, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man, referring to himself, is coming at an hour when you do not expect. Now, in our text, the word salvation, and the word salvation is used in various different ways in the Bible and in theology. Here, Paul is, is using it, it uh, with regards to salvation in, in, its, in its final stage, if you like. Our final deliverance, because that's what the word salvation means, both in the English and the Greek. It means to be saved. It means to be delivered. And here he's talking about the salvation that is coming and is soon to come. That is a final deliverance from the present evil age in which we now live. All you have to do is turn on the TV to believe that. That the present evil age, when Jack was reading Isaiah's and talking about that the nations will will hammer their swords into plowshares and learn war no more. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Haven't you had enough of that? In our pride and our arrogance. I, I was asking myself, and I've asked it before, what are the Russians doing in Ukraine? And that's not the only thing. That's just the one that you see. On TV, there's all kinds of conflicts going on, great and small. We live in the present evil age. David Tripp writes in his book, Dangerous Calling, the world in which we now live is broken. And because of this, we live and we serve as believers in an unpredictable and dangerous place. And so the salvation that Paul is talking about here is this our final deliverance when Christ will come and we will be delivered from this present evil age in which we now live. And because the believers at Rome were familiar with the truth of the gospel, Paul assumes that they, that they knew what he was talking about. He says, he begins in verse 11 by saying, and you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> And even though perhaps for us, especially today, Christ's return may not seem to be so near at hand, Jesus and his apostles assure us that it is. Indeed, if Christ's coming doesn't seem near to hand, at hand to us, you may be assured that it is at hand with God who's ready to make the next move. 
fact, it's the Apostle Peter who writes in his second letter this, 2 Peter in chapter 3. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness seems slow to us. <laughs> but God is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, and that all should come and reach to repentance. I need more time. <laughs> And many of you do too. So thanks be to God that he hasn't come just yet. Verse 10 of that passage, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And so what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for, the, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? And so Paul, in our text, says that the night is far gone. The night, the present evil age. <laughs> it's interesting, I've, this popped into my head, you know, when in the Gospel of John, when Jesus gives the sup, sop of bread and wine to Judas, and none of the other disciples know that Judas is the one who's to betray him, even though Jesus said, one of you will betray me. He dips the bread in the wine and he gave it to Judas and he said, and what you do, do quickly. And John says, and he went out, and it was night. Because that's when you do evil. You do it at night, under cover of darkness. And Paul says that the night is far gone. The night of this present age is far gone. And the day of Christ's return is near at hand. <laughs> Or to put it as the New English translation and the message put together, the night has advanced towards dawn, and dawn is about to break. And that's where the apostle says we are. Night is almost completely finished, and dawn is ready to break over the horizon. And so Paul says that our salvation his coming again, Jesus' is coming again is nearer now than when we first believed. And Paul says, that being the case, he says, now is the time to be ready for him when he comes. Indeed, Paul says, now is the time to wake from sleep. Sleep being a metaphor for spiritual and moral carelessness. In fact, if it, Jesus was talking about anything, when he said, be on your guard, be on the lookout, watch, it's the exact opposite of spiritual and moral carelessness. Oh, well. <laughs> and Paul says that now is the time to cast off the works of darkness. It's an interesting expression. It's, you find the expression... In the prophets, Isaiah in particular, this idea of, of, of taking moral action and the metaphor being like clothing. Pull off that dirty old stuff and cast it aside. Like you would an old dirty garment. Cast aside the works of darkness. Reject them. Get rid of them. 
And then by contrast, Paul says, and put on the armor of light. Take that stuff off and put this stuff on. Cast off the darkness and put on light. There's a new living translation has it. Put on the shining armor of right living. (laughs) In fact, that reminded me of something that Martin Luther King Jr. said many years ago. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Some of you are in the habit of fighting fire with fire. You know what you get when you do that? Just more destruction. Next time I suggest you put a little water on the fire. But Martin Luther King Jr. said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And so it would seem that it's really not enough just to stop doing what is dark and evil. That's not enough. Just stopping it and, and taking. In fact, if you, if you just take that off, you, you're left naked. <laughs> That's no good. You take this off and you put something else on. You cast off the works of darkness and you put on the armor of light. Indeed, we win the battle over darkness and evil by deliberately taking on the light and walking in it. Pursuing it because it's good and beautiful. I love what Pastor Brian Clark said. Those who dance with God dance in the light. For some of you, when we talk about good, you say, well, who wants to do that? That's because you're living in the darkness. That's what what the Gospel of John says. They love the darkness for their deeds were evil. (laughs) I know what that's about. I know what it's like to do evil and love it and love to be in the darkness, but I also know what it's like to live in the light. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot more fun dancing with God in the light than dancing with the devil and his minions in the dark because they don't care for you, and their ultimate goal is to destroy you. (laughs) And some of you who have been taken down to the bottom know that that's true, and the rest of you, are on the descent down the Jericho Road and just haven't gotten there yet. Those who dance with God dance in the light. It's not a drudgery. Listen, don't feel feel bad for godly people. I mean, not the ones that the sourpusses. (laughs) The ones that that are full of the Spirit, full of love. What's the second part of the fruit of the Spirit? Joy. In God's presence, the psalmist said, Psalm 16 and verse 11, in God's presence is fullness of joy. Those who walk with God or dance with God dance in the light. It's a dance. Not a drudgery. And so Paul says that now is the time to to live right. And he says, as in the daytime. (laughs) That's an interesting expression. In the daytime. Like those uh, who, who are in plain view of God and everybody else. Live like that. <laughs> Live like somebody's listening. Live like somebody's watching. In, pa- in, in particular, God. By the way, God is watching. 
He's watching when no one else can. That's why I think it was Swindoll who said, you know who the real you is? The real you is you when no one else is watching. But even when no one else is watching, God sees. In fact, that's, that's why he's such a good friend. He knows all about you, and he still died for you. That's how precious you are to him. And that's the same God who's calling you and me to the things that we're talking about now. He's not trying to wreck your life. He's trying to save it. He's not trying to get you to conform to some unpleasant thing. He's trying to transform your life from the inside out. That's the God who in Christ died for you and for me. And so the time... Paul says it's time for us to live right as in the daytime, like those who are, are, see themselves in plain view of God and others, and then to deliberately steer clear of the sorts of things that people do at night in the darkness and other fleshly acts. And he gives a list here. It's a short list, but sort of a broad one, such as orgies. Now, it's interesting that they use orgies. I, I, have, I think I may have found the word orgies in one other English translation, but most of them translate it, because we usually think of just sex, but it's, this word is broader than that. And so most New Testament translations use words such as carousing, reveling, wild parties, out of control, the sorts of <laughs> the sorts of things that people tell you about the day after and you can't remember. That's what God is saying. Don't do that. That's not good. And drunkenness, which is related to that, which like all addiction, if that's in fact the issue, is likely to indicate a deeper problem. It's not about the alcohol or the drugs it's what somebody is trying to numb themselves to, that they use such things. And that helps them forget. And sexual immorality, Paul mentions. That is, sexual behavior that's contrary to God's will for us. We're all sexual beings. Listen, all of us here are the products of sex. <laughs> right? It's God's plan. He created them in the garden, male and female. And then he said, multiply and fill the earth. This is the way it works. Nothing wrong with that. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful gift. But there are parameters, and God tries to protect us from hurting ourselves and others. God has an order. Let's bless it. And sensuality, that is, if you like, Shameless indulgence, the NIV translates the word debauchery. And then we go into something that maybe, um, I think maybe Christian people don't think much about or don't think it's all that bad. I think it's sort of interesting that we go from orgies to drunkenness to sexual immorality to sensuality to quarreling. <laughs> And there's a great deal uh, written 
and, and about Jesus is talking about, about peace, peace with God, and peace with others. And the apostles write even more about that, about living in unity. In fact, the gospel itself is a message that God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him and live in communion with him, and then we can live in communion with one another. Quarreling is the exact opposite. That doesn't come from God. That comes from somewhere else. And so quarreling, in fact, I just read recently Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 13. Strive for peace. What an interesting expression. You want to strive for something? <laughs> the writer to the Hebrews says, strive for peace with everyone, he says. <laughs> and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And jealousy. What do you do when somebody's doing well? Hey, I got a brand new car. <laughs> That's the car I wanted. But I can't swing the payments. What a jerk. This and that. John Piper said that jealousy is desire and resentment combined. Jealousy is desire and resentment combined. That's beautiful, and that's true. I want this, and I hate you because you've got it, and I don't. Or someone else has written, and this is maybe hitting a little too close to the church. If you want to be comforted by others, share your bad news. If you want to be hated by others, share your good news. How do you handle people's good news? Do you rejoice with them? Or do you hate them for it? See, that's pretty sinister, isn't it? Because that, that leads to conflict and the exact opposite of the gospel. And so Paul says that now is the time to be ready for Christ when he comes. And then, very quickly, to sum it up and to put it very simply, Paul says that to be ready for Christ when he comes is to be like Christ himself. I don't know why some Christians like, well, you know, I'm not Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're supposed to be! <laughs> That's your calling. In fact, in, in, in the Old Testament, God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. You are my people, my sons, my daughters. Be like me. <laughs> or in Ephesians 5, and Jesus said it too, but Paul said it in Ephesians 5, Be ye imitators of God. But we think of God like, hey, you know, God's really cool, man, and I really like my church, and, uh, the, and you know, I've got, I got this thing going on, and I get God, and he helps me, and, you know, God's really useful. That's how too many Christians, I think, think about God. God's great because God is useful. 
Think about having a relationship, having a relationship with somebody who, who thought of his or her relationship with you like that. Well, I really like Bob, you know. What do you like about him? Well, Bob's really useful. I use Bob all the time. In fact, the other day I came knocking at his door. It was about the 37th time. And I saw him in there, but he didn't answer. <laughs> yeah, right. You want to have a, a relationship with somebody who just finds you useful? What happens when you cease to be useful? Well, I guess that's where the relationship ends. But notice verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ like you would put on a fine garment. It's another way of saying, be like him. Which, of course, is at the, at the heart of discipleship. We, we don't use that, we don't use that a, a lot. You know, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Lots of, here's what we hear a, a lot is, uh, I'm a Christ follower. means the same thing. You're following in his way. He lives that way, you're following him. You think like him, you act like him. Your values are his values. As Paul said to the Galatians, or to the, uh, the, yes, the Galatians, it's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. That's that what he was saying is I, I am, I, he is the rabbi and I am the complete student, the complete follower, the complete disciple. It's no longer I. His values, his life, his everything is living in me. When Peter and, and John came before the Sanhedrin, after Jesus had died and was raised and ascended, and they were preaching and healing in Jesus' name, and they were brought on trial and told not to do it anymore. But it was interesting, one of the observations of members of the Sanhedrin who had arranged Jesus' crucifixion, they said, these men were not, of Peter and John, these men were not educated in our yeshiva. Not in our schools, but one thing is clear. They've been with Jesus. Why? Because they talk like him. And they say the things that he says. And they have the same courage. Seeming fearlessness. Because they were true disciples. They had put on <laughs> the Lord Jesus. Indeed, Jesus says in John or in Matthew chapter 10 at verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. That's discipleship. That's the goal. That's what we're all working toward, I hope, to be like him. And then you'll know his, his mind and his emotions and his contentment and his sense of peace. Remember that? My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. I was praying just the other night. I pray myself to sleep every night. And I was saying, Lord, give me peace, not as the world gives. I don't want my peace, Lord. <laughs> I want you to give me your peace. And he did, and I fell asleep. <laughs> I want his peace. And then Paul says, and make no provision for the flesh in order to gratify its desires. The word provision 
pronoia, pronoia. Noia is the, has to do with the mind, and pro is before. It, it, literally, the word means to think before. Here's it called provision, or foreseeing. In fact, we would think of the word forethought, and maybe that's a clearer word than to use the word provision, forethought. Or we would say maybe premeditate. So in the New Living Translation, it says, and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. You ever do that? <laughs> ever do that? You just plan it out. Step A, step B, step C. How I'm going to get to that dark place where I want to go. And Paul says, don't do it. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision. No, take no forethought about how you're going to gratify your fallen fleshly desires. And if you and I are doing this, then we will be ready for Christ when he comes. So I wonder, are you ready? <laughs> Let us pray. Lord, I trust we want to be ready. We don't want to shrink in shame as John talks about in his letter. But we want to stand with confidence. He's here. He's here. Even as the servants do in Jesus' parables. They're ready when he comes. In the middle of the night and they're ready. When they least expect him, the Lord of the manor comes. Christ the Son comes and we're ready. In fact, as Paul talked about it, those who love his appearing, they, they're watching, they're watching, they're watching, and can't wait for his return. Lord, make us like that. Not only because it's the right thing to do, but it is the sensible thing to do. And it leads to only good, not only in the future, when you come, but even right now. And so help us to do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.